Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This pretty sweeping statement, respect for everyone. Have you ever been uh, involved in a conflict situation, a big mess in your life, and as you're going through the situation, you just kept thinking to yourself, you know what? The real problem in life is not that life is difficult or circumstances are difficult, but the real problem in this world is that people are difficult. Have you ever thought that to yourself? Because, you know, let's just face it. Life being tough is just the reality most of us accept. That's not the part that gets us. It's all the people sharing the planet with us that make difficult situations even worse. That's what breaks our hearts. That's what frustrates us. And if you, if you resonate with that, if you agree with that, this is a message that addresses that directly. I think it is true that more than life, people stink. And when I say people, I don't mean you people. I mean me too. I'm one of the stinkiest people you're ever going to meet. Okay, if you could just see the real me, I'm not proud of the person I am deep down inside and I'm trusting Jesus every day to shape more of himself in me because the truth is, there's not a good person in this room. There are redeemed people, people God's working on, but we are the ones who make the world pretty difficult. And if you have any mystery about that, gather some courage and ask the people closest to you, hey, have there ever been times when I just made your life more difficult than it needed to be? Now some of you are like, I can't believe anyone would say yes. Everyone you care about will say, yeah, sometimes it's you. It's you. So I think the word of God in this passage is addressing directly how do at least the people who follow Jesus Christ stop being part of the problem and start to become part of the solution. This morning we're bringing to a close a mini-series in our, our whole coverage of First Peter that we've been calling R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And that's, you know, borrow a little thing from Aretha Franklin there. It's all about how people who follow Christ should be people who are respectful and have a proper attitude toward authority and the rights of others. That we as Christ followers should not be overly engaged with defending our rights but of putting first the rights of others and acknowledging the rights of those in authority to lead. That there are times when we should make a stand, but for the most part we ought not to be troublemakers getting in people's way and getting in God's way when He is at work. It's a very counterintuitive teaching that there is power in yielding and the world around us doesn't really teach us that lesson. But there is great power to be found in submission to others, especially to those in authority. For one thing, it reminds us that God is at work and when we submit to authority and to Him, we get out of His way and let Him keep working. You know that difficult authority figure in life that you're really disliking right now? God has a plan for that person's life. God is at work in that person's life and if instead of submitting, you start a fight, God's work may be greatly hindered and sidelined because you have now taken center stake with your insistence on your rights. 
And so we've been learning from a number of social contexts, whether it's you as a citizen with the government, or whether it's you as an employer with the employers, or whether it's you as a wife in the context of marriage or a husband in the context of marriage. Submission to others is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And now we come to a passage where, where Peter is pretty much summing up the whole thing. And I know that he's giving a summary teaching here because he begins with the word finally, which some other translations translate very well to sum up, to sum up. Listen to what it says. Let's read this together. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's a lot in this passage and so much that could be said about it. In fact, there are five things right there in verse 8 and so much could be said about each one of them and you know that I could say so much about each one of them, right? So I'm not going to say so much about everything but in each of those five things I think there is one really important aspect we need to see. And overall, here's what I think Peter is saying. He's saying, I've given you three very specific situations and I don't want you to get the wrong idea. To be respectful and submissive as a Christian is not restricted only to these three contexts. But to sum it up, this is actually the kind of person you should be. What he's trying to say to us is he hasn't given us a list of specific rules for specific situations, but he's really getting at what kind of people should we become. And that's really the heartbeat of the Christian faith, isn't it? I think God is less concerned about giving us specific rules for specific scenarios and far more concerned about what kind of people are we actually becoming. That's why I get annoyed when I'm raising my children, especially my, two of my kids seem to be a little more mechanical about things and they're always asking me, what should I do? What should I do? And as a father, I'm not trying to just, I, I don't want to give them a, ma a massive Lee family manual, the handbook on what to do in every situation. That's just exhausting. I wish, and as I'm raising them, they could realize, I want you to become a certain kind of person. I want you to have a mindset, an attitude and posture of the heart, so whatever situation you find yourself in, you know what kind of people we are. You know how to do it because there is a general way of doing life and thinking about things. That's what I believe God is after in our lives. And yet so often we refuse to mature as Christians and instead of saying, God, am I becoming more like Jesus? We insist, God, what do you want me to do here? What should I do? What should I do? And he says, pay attention to me. There is a picture of the person I want you to look like to become. Now I want to key in on, on, on verse uh, 8 there. Because there's some things that are really important aspects of the kind of persons we are being called to become. And at first blush, you could look at that and say, that's just a list of character traits. 
And yeah, I suppose you can make that argument, but do not let it be missed on you. Look at that. It's each one of those traits is not just a description or adjective. There's a verb there. In other words, in this list of things, the kind of people we are to become, he's not just saying, let me paint for you a picture of what Christians look like. But he's saying, this is how we become these kinds of people, by choosing to do certain things. Put another way, your choices determine your character. What you choose to do becomes what kind of person you are. There is no shortcut around this. This is the way you have become you. Now, if you're sitting next to somebody who's special in your life, a spouse or whatever, you know this. That person that's sitting next to you, they are who they are, not because they were forced to be like that through genetics. They are that way over the course of a lifetime of everyday choices which has solidified that personality and that character in them. And the amazing thing is you can actually transform your character in Christ through obedience and a different set of choices. So what choices are we to make as Christians? I'm going to breeze through these things. A first choice is this. Be harmonious. Be harmonious. I really like the Greek word that stands behind that. It, it's the perfect translation. Be harmonious. It's not necessarily to be of one mind in like some kind of Vulcan mind meld where you just, you know, we're like the Borg plugged into the system. We all have the same thought. I would hate it if all of us thought about everything the same way. Now, I'll admit to you, sometimes in our board meetings, I'm tempted to, to kind of control them and go, I want all of you to think like me. But actually, that would make church really boring and really dysfunctional. I'm so happy that some of you are just weird as heck. I mean, when you start opening your mouth and describing what you think we should do, it would never in a thousand years have occurred to me to see the situation that way. You are crazy. But your crazy is God's brilliance because you have something that I just won't ever have. And that's why I think it's so important that we understand harmony only makes sense when there are so many distinct voices. When I was 14, I began playing cello. It lasted about nine months, I think. And then I put an end to it. But while I was playing cello, I discovered something about music that I was actually surprised to learn. If you're in the music world, you're thinking I'm stupid, but I didn't realize there are different musical scores for the same musical piece depending on which instruments you play. So somebody would say, oh, which score do you need? I'm like, what do you mean which score? I'm, I want this piece. They're like, yeah, but which instrument? And I couldn't get it, but now it makes all the sense in the world. See, how boring would a symphony sound if every instrument just played the same notes at the same time? Dun, 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 dun. It, would, it would sound so boring. Every instrument sounds different. In fact, every instrument is hitting different notes at different times in different ways, but under a good conductor with a good score, it all works together. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever played in a, an orchestra or uh, sang in a choir. So you know what I'm talking about. Aren't you glad that the cello doesn't sound like the timpani? <laughs> Isn't that a good thing? But here's the thing. If we're not operating on one score... It's going to be noisy and very, very unpleasant to listen to. It may seem like a simple principle to you, and you've kind of been there, done that, but listen, the reason sometimes church and family become so unpleasant is because we think we get this, but we don't practice it. You know what we're like? We're like that guy who plays, what's that? Is that, is it timpani, that big kettle drum thing? Is that right? 
You know, and, or, or the guy who plays the cymbals in the orchestra, and on his score, it's like all blank, and then bang, there's one note. And so he's just waiting. He's like, this stinks. First violin gets all the glory, and here I am. I've got to hit that one note right, just at the right time. And so he gets upset. He goes, that's it. I get so little spotlight. When it's my turn, I'm going to make sure that I'm heard. And so they wait and wait. And instead of just coming in naturally, they go, bam! <laughs> and they're very happy because they got a little attention. They were heard and everyone knew they were there. But it ruined the whole piece. Because it became all about, I need you to hear me. I don't care about the rest of this orchestra. I've got a voice here and I want you to hear me. Listen in a choir when one voice dominates, especially when it's not a good voice. I once sang in Moody Church in a children's choir. That was about 27 years ago. And I still remember how badly this one person sang. And yet, it was so unfortunate that God graced them with a very loud and yet unskilled voice. Is it possible that you're like that? That you're so keen on being heard and getting your point across that you really don't care what the whole piece sounds like. As long as your instrument has had its day on in, the, in the limelight, you don't care if the whole piece sounds good. Now maybe that's relevant to you in family life. It probably is true of some of us in work life and definitely in church life. And that's why the whole thing gets a little noisy and unpleasant sometimes, doesn't it? And imagine if instead of being of all different mindsets, we said, you know, what matters right now is that somehow together our disparate views come together to form music that's easy to listen to, that's beautiful. I really value how different your perspective may be, and I really value the fact that sometimes all of us have to just admit, I'm wrong, right? I mean, that's important. But we should never silence the different voices, but simply say to you, know how to get it heard with the right intention to make sweet music. Here's another thing that I think Peter says to us, a choice that needs to be made. Be sympathetic. It's a nice pair of shoes, isn't it? Be sympathetic. Now, why am I putting shoes there? You'll you'll see the, the reason for it in a minute. But you know, the word sympathy, we usually associate with what event? When do you buy a sympathy card? At a funeral, right? We buy sympathy cards at times when people are grieving the death of a loved one. And maybe that's instructive for us, right? Because at funerals, what is it that we're trying to say to the, the grieving family? We're trying to say to them, you are not alone in your grief. Though certainly your pain is probably greater than ours, we're not going to leave you alone to suffer by yourselves. We're trying very hard to say to you, we understand your pain and we will surround you until you don't need us anymore. Because we love you, we want to feel your pain with you. You know, as a pastor, I've been part of a lot of conflicts. And I don't mean conflicts where I'm involved, but I've been the referee in thousands of conflicts. Some of you in this very room, I have refereed some of your greatest conflicts in your life. It's been a privilege to share that, but I've learned some things along the way about human beings. I've even learned about myself along the way. And one of the great life lessons I've picked up is that in most conflicts, the communication process breaks down because we've just started seeing only our side and have lost the ability to put on another person's shoes. 
I mean, whenever I'm in, involved in one of these really difficult conflicts, it's always the same case. Whether it's a teenager with their parents or a husband with a wife, the same story over and over. They're just started shouting because they feel frustrated at not being heard, and they've completely given up trying to put on another person's shoes. You know this word sympathetic, which Peter uses here to describe how Christians ought to relate to other people, is that one of the first rules of engagement for us is that we should learn how to put on another person's shoes. Now, again, this is not earth-shattering stuff. This is not, oh, Confucius Day, and then you're like, he's so wise, I never heard this before. Simple stuff. But the reason life sometimes gets so ugly and messy is because none of us do it. We're all like, dang, it's so true, you know. Other people really should do that. But you know why church and family and work become so messy? Because we don't do it. How sympathetic are we really? How often do we begin an argument by putting on the other person's shoes? I need to make a confession because I'm preaching this message and you might be thinking I'm always like this. Just this morning, just this morning, I got a little irritated. I got a little irritated because this clicker was missing. The clicker was here. The other end of it that makes it work was missing. And, you know, I don't like when things don't work. I don't like when people misplace things. And, you know, so I started getting into the whole, well, that's unacceptable kind of tone and and mindset. And I think I kind of ruined somebody's morning today. I hope I didn't. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I ruined your morning. You know who you are. I just remember thinking, yeah, I'm looking at it from my perspective, which is I've got to preach this sermon and I want my cool pictures to show up just in time and I want to control it and it's unacceptable that it's, (sighs) you know, and I was getting all upset. And I didn't think for a minute that the leader of that team isn't here this week, that this is a team newly assembled, the third week on the job. They've done a lot of things right, and they've done this one thing a little wrong. And, you know, for the moment, I'm about to preach a message on putting other people's shoes on, and I didn't do it. That's pretty messed up. And I don't know how you can listen to me preach after this. (laughs) Don't leave, but I'm just saying, you know, The problem is not that we don't know. The problem is that we don't do. And if you're involved in a conflict right now, I'll bet you if you analyze it, you'll see how you've just stopped trying to hear the other person and you're just intent on being heard and understood. And it will break down. To put on another person's shoes is to desperately seek to understand what it's like for them. Do you know what that is? It's the most bizarre invention ever. It's called a sympathy belly. It allows the husbands of pregnant women to walk around with that thing. And it's so funny, they got the top and the bottom, you know. Just so you know, this is what it's like to be me for a day. And how people stare at you and try to touch your belly and all the stuff that comes with it. A man begins to understand by walking one day in that woman's shoes. And this is the heart of what it means to be sympathetic. Are you getting the picture so far? This is sweeping in all relationships. Followers of Jesus must be like this. Here's the third choice we as Christ followers must learn to make. Be brotherly. Man, that brings back some memories. That stud on the left, believe it or not, that's me. That was taken junior year of high school. I can't believe how young we looked there. And how skinny. So, love as brothers. The word brotherly love is actually the very word from which we get the city name Philadelphia. 
It is literally the love that brothers enjoy when brotherhood is working at its best. It's not broken, dysfunctional brotherhood, but when two brothers who really love each other stand with each other, it's kind of like me and my brother. One of the greatest gifts of God to me in my life is my younger brother. He and I are really, really close. I love him more than just about anyone on the planet. And I'm so thankful of all the people that could have been my brother. That's the one God gave me. So when I speak in the terms of brother and family, it has a very high bar for me in my mind. And I think that's the way God wants it. You know, when we're at church and we say, hey, bro, you know, like we shorten it. What does that mean when you call someone bro or brother? Is it just because you don't remember their name? (laughs) It should mean that that person is to you something so deep. What is at the heart of familial love, of Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, and love the way brothers do. What does that mean? It means a lot of things, but the one thing I want to say about it is, it means that when you deal with this relationship, you fully acknowledge that it is a relationship that is not dissolvable or disposable. You know, everybody else in your life, if you want to, you can go, game over, I'm done with you. You're fired, right? Have you ever wanted to say to somebody, you're fired, like Donald, you're fired. I'm done with you. Get out of my life, burn my number, take me off your speed dial. You and I are just not friends anymore. Some of you are my friend, and I bet you've passed through seasons of our relationship where you've wanted to fire me. I wouldn't be surprised at all. And I've had some times when I wanted to fire you, I bet. The funny thing about brothers is that you can't unbrother a brother. There were days when we were younger when I looked at that guy on the right side of that picture and I wanted to go, you are not my brother. We punched each other in the face before. We have really gone at it. But the funny thing about brothers is that you cannot unbrother them. In fact, when I typed the word unbrother in my sermon notes, Microsoft Word squigglied it with red and said, that's not a word. If you could unbrother someone, it would be a word, wouldn't it? The truth is, brother is a permanent situation. And it's not something that's because of our own choice. Steve is not my brother because I picked him out of a catalog. What do I want for a brother? I'll take that dude. You know what? It it didn't work that way. I I was showed up on the planet, and then a couple years later, he showed up on the planet, and someone told us, you're brothers. And we've had to live like that ever since. And when we call each other brother or sister within the church, it's not because we like each other. It's not because we chose to come to this church together. You know, Harvest is sort of like my place, my home, and so you're my brother as long as you behave yourself. But I will unbrother you or unsister you the minute you step out of line and offend me. It doesn't work that way. You and I, if we're in Christ together, we're brother and sisters because we have the same Father. And that's it. You don't dissolve that relationship. It's not up to us to change it. And to love as brothers is to love with that permanence in view. Do you get it? You know, when you fight with a friend, you could divorce that friend. But when you fight with a brother, you always have in the back of your mind, (laughs) where am I going to go? You're the only brother I got, unfortunately. And you know a year later, you're still going to be like, all right, I'll come over. I'll help you move. Because you're a brother. When you and I interact with each other, That's the way it should work. Never treat me like I'm someone who you can kick out of your life. And I should never treat you that way either. And if you make that choice, 
it will transform the way you experience church and family and life. Here's another thing which commands. He says, you as a Christian should make the choice to be compassionate. What does compassion mean in this context? And I know I've got this sort of mind meld thing going there, but that's really what it's about. Compassion is not just to put yourself in another person's situation intellectually and try to imagine what it's like, but it is to genuinely feel what they're feeling. Interestingly enough, the Greek word Peter uses here only occurs once in the New Testament in this verse. It's a very strange word. <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry, that, that's not it. It's a, it's a word that means this, okay? It means, uh, how do I put this? You're not going to understand it in English, but literally translated, it means to have strong bowels. And no, it's not what you're thinking. Okay? Some of you have furiously strong bowels. It, it's not like you, have, you, you really evacuate well in the bathroom. Here's what it means. The ancients believed that the deep-seated genesis, the origin of human feelings, was not in the heart as Western culture believes. You know, we always talk about, where's your heart right now? Well, the ancients believed that our feelings and our sentiments arose out of our bowels, out of our guts. That actually makes sense to me, you know, because that's what starts hurting when you're, when you're not doing well with people. You have a stomach, and you go, oh. When you're nervous, what happens? Your stomach gets all wobbly. The guts were the ancient source of all feelings. And so what Peter is saying is this. If you're a compassionate person, you have a very strong capacity to feel what other people are feeling. Now, some people are naturally empathetic. Some people are naturally pathetic, but some people are naturally empathetic, meaning they just have this built-in ability to feel things. I marvel at people who watch a movie that is fictional and they cry. Boggles my mind, but the truth is sometimes I'm a little jealous of that. I think, am, am I dead inside? How come I can't even raise up a smidgen of emotion? And here's the person going, God. And I'm like, you know it's not true, right? Like this is fiction, but they cry because they're wired in such a beautiful way that they feel what you're feeling. Do you know that it's been difficult serving as a pastor not having that natural wiring? Sometimes a person's breaking down in front of me. I so badly want to embrace them. In my mind, I'm with them. But I just, you know what I mean? I'm just staring at them like, you almost done. <laughs> I, I don't really, and it's not because I'm, I'm cold-hearted. I want so badly to feel it, but God just didn't wire me that way. But here's the amazing thing. Even if you don't have the wiring, you can grow in that capacity by making choices. Make it a habit to say, if I were in your situation, and just this is not like a, a massive long thing, but just a, a momentary reflection, what would it feel like to be you right now? Have you ever had the experience of being a visitor in a new place? Maybe for some of you I'm describing right now for you. Your first time in this church. And you go down to the fellowship afterwards and you're hiding behind that tiny styrofoam cup of coffee going, oh, this is very awkward. And as you look around, all these people seem to know each other and they're exchanging warm hugs and everything. And the whole time, everyone's sort of conveniently walking right past you and no one's talking to you. And you're sitting there thinking, this is so uncomfortable. I just wish, and you probably say this to yourself in that moment, I wish someone understood what it feels like to be me right now. I wish they understood because then they probably treat me a little differently. 
You know, years ago when we had a, our welcoming team was doing all the greeting up front and it wasn't our community groups doing it, we mandated that every member of the welcoming team would have to go and visit another church. Not my friend's church, not my parents' church, but just random. Go to the Yellow Pages, bam, pick a church, walk in cold off the street, a complete stranger, and see what it feels like to be a stranger. You know what, it, you know what happens when you make choices that give you a greater capacity to feel other people's feelings? You grow in your ability to empathize with people. And it changes the way you relate to other human beings. There are times when a person's words or opinions or actions will irritate you to no end. And if you only look at what they're saying or doing or thinking, you will miss the point. Every person acts out of a context. And compassion drives us to recognize the reason you're being such a jerk right now is because something is going on in your life that creates jerkiness in you. And if I don't get at what's lying behind your jerkiness, I'm just going to punish you for being a jerk and fail to see who you are right now. And here's the last thing. Be humble. And I made a little error in speaking before. This is the word that only occurs here in the New Testament. It's a strange word, and scholars have wrestled with how to understand it. The best two words or two phrases to describe this word, be humble, is be friendly and be lowly of spirit. Be friendly and be lowly of spirit. And so all week I took those two words and I, figured, I tried to figure out, like, what does that mean? How can I make a choice to be like this when I barely understand what those two phrases have to do with each other? Here's what I think it means. And maybe I can make the point by describing a scenario to you. See, I, I believe that most of us are pretty insecure. Anybody agree with that? Even the, the really good-looking, cocky people driving really nice cars, they're pretty insecure when push comes to shove. How many of you would admit that deep down inside, you're a charged, swirling ball of insecurity? Now, I'm kind of insecure too, and I, the more I thought about this, I realized this is what drives so much of the way we deal with other people. We deal with each other out of our insecurities. So let me paint a scenario for you. You're at a house party somewhere and you're hanging out with good friends and you're just enjoying the time. Everyone's laughing. You know everyone in the house. It feels good to be alive. Then all of a sudden, the doorbell rings and someone comes to the door and it's somebody that obviously everyone else at the party knows from a long time ago. This is our old friend Mike and everyone's high-fiving him and hugging him and there's a lot of excited chatter and you don't know who Mike is. You're suddenly the odd man out. You're at this party having the time of your life and Mike ruined everything. Who is this Mike? Why are you here? How do you know these people? And how come I'm the only one who doesn't know you, Mike? I don't like this. Now the whole party's ruined. And so you're standing there kind of awkward, the odd man out going, I don't know who this Mike guy is, but he sure seems like he likes attention and you're just kind of irritated. Are you feeling this? Maybe this happened to you. It happened to me. That's why it's so vivid. As I give you this illustration, all right? So here's Mike acting like the star, the toast of the party, and everyone's just, and they're sharing all these old stories like painful inside jokes that I'm not in on. Like, remember that time you did this? Oh my God, it was awesome. And they high five. I'm like, I wasn't there. Now, I feel this strong sense of responsibility on the others that they should have introduced me to Mike like 15 minutes ago. But you know, they're just having too much fun because they love this guy and it's great to see him. So they haven't even thought about me. I'm just out there waiting. 
And then I see Mike, who doesn't seem like an insecure guy. He sure seems confident. I feel like, Mike, you should at least introduce yourself to me. Hello, the one dude you don't know. Say something to me. Give me an in, something. But of course, Mike just, you know, that awkward glance. Like, I should say something. Who, who's that guy? Like, and he looks at me, I look at him, and we're just kind of looking at each other. Like, and after a moment, a decision is made. I don't like Mike. Everyone may know Mike, but I ain't never getting to know Mike because Mike is rude and he's self-centered and really not that sensitive. And well, who coozes Mike anyway? I don't need Mikes in my life. So you spend the rest of that party doing what? Kind of cautiously avoiding each other, sensing the awkwardness. We should have said something a long time ago. Now, the mature thing to do would be walk right up to Mike and go, Hey, I have no idea who you are. Everyone else knows you. I'm Dave. I sure would like to be your friend. That would be the grown-up thing to do. Problem solved. Problem solved. There's a good friend in my life who embodies that. That's exactly what he would do. It humbles me every time I see it, and I see how insecure I am. I would be that guy. I just, in fact, I was that guy. That's, that's why I know exactly what I, that guy is thinking. I'm still that guy in many ways. And to be humble is to be friendly and to get over yourself and be lowly of spirit and say, you know, there are so many situations where insecurity that you're feeling will cause you to relate to people in all these unhealthy ways. And I believe what true humility in this context is, is to just have this ability to get over yourself, to swallow your pride, and to extend a hand of friendship to somebody. To see, you know, this is silly. I'm going to get over the awkwardness and just say, look, I should know who you are. Here's who I am. How often do we do things like that? So much more often the story of our relationships is that we gave in to that insecurity and we let the awkwardness become a relational drift between us. And for some of us, that actually happens in marriage, family life. It's so sad when two people start drifting apart because they just were too insecure to do the easiest, most direct thing. Have you ever had that experience where uh, you met somebody eight times and they told you their name eight times and you still can't remember? So now when you see them at church, you're like, What's up? All right. Nice to see you. And all you have to do is, I'm an idiot. I keep forgetting your name. I'm so sorry. What's your name for the ninth time? And I know they'll be a little hurt, but that will be the most humble thing to do is to say, Look, I just don't know your name. But what do we do instead? I guess I can never know you now because <laughs> it's too late. What is wrong with us? Why are we so insecure? Now, I'll just give you a couple closing comments here to tie it up with the rest of this passage because Peter says, say no to payback. Didn't you love the moment in the Rocky movies where Rocky plays the human punching bag, I know what I'm doing. He should be dead, really, to have a concussion. But instead, he waits, and then when the other guy's tired from punching him too much, think about that. I'm tired from punching you too much. Then he comes back and delivers retribution, the payback. And we all cheer because that's the moment we would long for in our own lives. In verse 9, Peter gives a teaching that is annoyingly difficult to hear. And he says it so casually. Listen, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with a blessing. And you go, shut up, Peter. What are you talking about? 
Oh yeah, I, I just always do that. You do evil to me and I will bless you. Oh, bless you. I can't even bless the guy who cuts me off in traffic. How do I bless someone who does evil or insults me? And insulting is not, oh, you're a dork, but insulting is like reviling. Really getting, hitting you below the belt, picking out that one weakness which you hate about yourself and getting you right there going, hey, you're short. I know, I got nothing to say to that. And it just reduces you to nothing and you're so angry about it. And you, everything in you says, one day the greatest revenge is I shall be tall and I shall crush you. Because that's what we say to ourselves. If you were made little of because your family was poor, 99% chance your life ambition is to be rich and exact vengeance in all those insensitive people. Isn't there a worldly saying, the best revenge is living well, right? You know what? That's wrong. And Peter says, as hard as that is to hear, this is the way God's economy works. That God will most powerfully work through you when you refuse to fight back and you repay evil with blessing. Now here's the thing. That's a 350-pound bench press bar. You can't just give that to someone and go, put it up. Right? If it were me, maybe there's a chance. you know. But uh, When I was in college, I began college, as I told you many times before, with a concave chest. I couldn't, I couldn't even bench press 100 pounds. I remember the first time I went to the weight room, a girl <laughs> had been bench pressing. I'm like, whatever. And I tried to do it, and I put one up. But you should have seen my spaghetti arm. You know, it was like the 25-pound bar, the, uh, the, the dumbbells are on there, and the plates. I could barely put that up. By the end of college, I was lifting much more than that. But it wasn't an overnight thing. This crazy dude named Mike Lewis made me work out for two hours every day, once in the morning, once at night. People actually thought we were gay lovers because we were together all the time in the weight room. Then we were together in the shower room doing chin-ups on the shower rods, you know. People really thought something was shady because I was so committed to getting stronger. And it was me and Mike everywhere together, sweating. <laughs> what I learned is if you want to do the hard stuff, you've got to do the kind of hard stuff a lot of times. You get that? You don't put up 320 without putting up 250 at least 10 times. You hear me? These five things which he has called us to do, it is every day in real life making those little choices that develops in us the capacity to answer evil with blessing and insults with blessing. You don't just pick up a verse like this and go, okay, Jesus, I'll do it. It's impossible. You will fail. But every day, when you practice those five things in little and small ways, your muscles and your soul grow. And one day, you will come to a point where you can actually do this. You might have heard this old saying, sow a thought and reap a word. Sow a word and reap a deed. Sow a deed and reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. And sow a character and you reap a destiny. I think that's very true. And that's why when he says, don't just say no to payback, when the guy's been clubbing you, don't punch him back. Let him be tired out and then let God deliver the knockout blow. God will get to that person. You can't do that without putting into practice those other things. And I love what he says. It's my favorite animal, by the way, the cheetah. I wish I had more cheetah print clothing. It's just my favorite animal. And I love what he says right here in verse 11. 
Look at verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days. How many of you, that describes you? You just wish life were good. You want things to be easy and copacetic, and you want your relationships to work well. You want to love the people you're supposed to love. Don't you all want to live like that? And here's what he says. If that's what you want, then here's what you've got to do. You can't be that guy who keeps fighting all the time. You can't be the person who's always arguing with people, fighting for everything. Sometimes this is what you've got to do. You've got to turn from evil and do good. And here's the, the phrase I love. You must seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. That word peace is really shalom. And I've taught you many times before, shalom is not just peace the way we think of it. It's the way things are supposed to be. That's the biblical definition of shalom. The way it's supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to actively seek and pursue. I chose a cheetah because I saw a documentary where a cheetah, right, when he runs, he runs so, so hard and fast that he can only do the chase once that afternoon. He doesn't have any energy left for another chase. So what he does all day is he sits there and looks at all those antelopes and he's waiting. And when he finds the one that he wants, out of hundreds, he begins. And he only sees the one. The other one's all scattered, but he doesn't even move. And he chooses to pursue because these things that God is talking about, this transformation in us, it won't happen just with the passage of time. Some of us made the wrong assumption that if I just live longer and get older, I'm going to become wiser and more mature. There's a great old saying that, that an old man told me when I was in high school. Dave, young fools grow up to be old fools. And now I see the wisdom of his words because I know a lot of old fools. I really do. I know some people, I just look at them and go, dang man, at your age you should know better. But you know, getting older doesn't make you any wiser. And just sitting there doesn't make you stronger in any way. The only way that this change is going to happen is if you intentionally pursue it as a series of obedient choices filled with faith. And here's the thing. I don't want to burden you with just something you have to do, but here's the great promise at the end. It says in verse 12, and let me just back up to that. It says at the end of verse 12 there, sorry, where is it? There it is. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He says, if you will make this conscious choice to be this kind of person, so help you God, then God will so help you. Do you understand that? It's the people who go, it's too hard, I refuse to even try And they will become that cantankerous, lonely, bitter old person who will die alone because they don't know how to love anyone. They poison every relationship they touch because they are the broken piece of every machine they become part of. But if you will say, as hard as it is, I will choose this in obedience and faith, I promise you that when you groan under the weight of it and cry out to God, he will be attentive to that prayer and he will come to help you. In the back room, would you guys just cue me forward to the, that last let's review slide? Can you do that? I don't want to click my way through it again. I hope you've heard me in the things that we've said here. This is about choosing to do 
so that we are enabled to become. And this very afternoon, God will probably give you opportunities to practice these things. My question to you is, do you want to be this kind of person who blesses the relationships they are a part of? Or do you want to be a part of the problem? Just by way of review, be harmonious. Don't just shout your part. Let's make some music together. Let's take our turns and make room for other people's voices. Be sympathetic. What does that mean? Learn to put on other people's shoes as a habit. Be brotherly. That means remember that in this room among us, these are not disposable relationships. We're stuck with each other. And when you're stuck with someone, it tempers the way that you relate to them. Where else are you going to go? Be compassionate means develop the, the, the capacity to actually feel what others are feeling. And sometimes that means you put yourself in a situation where those feelings will naturally come so you appreciate what they're going through. And finally, don't let your insecurities win the day. Look, look right up at me. Get over yourselves and learn to be a friend. Don't be paralyzed by your insecurity. May God bless you as you see this heavy list of commands and venture out to become these kinds of people. I believe he will help you greatly as you strive to do it. Would you bow with me together and um, praise him? Would you make your way up here? I already admitted to you that this morning as I was getting ready to preach this message, I violated principle number two and four. This is not easy stuff. It's so easy to know. It's really hard to live. But by the grace of God, I didn't remain blind in it. But you know, he showed me the error of my ways. And this afternoon as I go out to a community group picnic and I interact with other people, I'm going to try to be very different. I'm going to try to be this kind of person which my God has asked me to be. And I know I'll fail again, but I'm going to keep trying because I believe if I do it, I will bless the people around me and my life will be better. And in the process, you and I will become different people. Wouldn't it be great if that were true of us? So why don't we lay claim to the promise in verse 12 there and say, Lord, I claim this. I want to do it. Now come help me. Come help me. Even today, come help me. Let's pray that right now.
pray together. Lord God, as we read this section of Peter's letter to his friends, we see emerging in our mind's eye such a beautiful and attractive picture of what human relationships could look like if people were more like you. Lord, I'm so captivated by this picture. And I, together with my brothers and sisters, confess before you that we are the ones who too often ruin that picture. And so we ask you for your help this morning. Change us, Lord. Help us to stop being part of the problem and become part of the solution, a different kind of people. Change us at the very heart so that we will be more like Jesus. And do this by your power and not simply by our striving. But nonetheless, help us to fight to obey you and be committed to obedience and discipline every day. May you receive the glory from our lives. Now receive this final song as a gift of praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.